0: So our question today that we are talking about is, did Jesus really claim to be God and is he the only way to salvation? It's kind of a dual question and we'll answer both parts of that. But in addressing that question today, I want to begin by saying that uh, the foundation has been well laid before us already. In fact, as we've been working through this great questions series, there are a couple of messages that Scott has given that really provide a helpful foundation for what we're going to talk about today. On July the 7th, just a couple of weeks ago, he, we talked about the Trinity and the question was, what is the Trinity? And in that message, uh, Scott laid a foundation for Jesus as a part of the Trinity, the divine second person of the Trinity. And so that's an important message that lays the foundation for where we are today. Also, just before that one, uh, on June 23rd, there was a question that uh, was, how do we know that the New Testament is a reliable source of truth? That was on June the 23rd. You can find both of those messages on our website and you can listen to those again. Those provide a foundation that we will build upon. I don't want to um, overstep what's already been said. And additionally, if you've been around for a couple years, for a two years ago, you may remember a series very much like this one. And it happened, and it was called Hot Topics. And it were topics that you submitted to us. Well, there was one two years ago, on July 23rd, 2017, Mark Lieber, who's one of our elders, gave a message. And it was called The Exclusivity of Christ. And that is a fantastic foundation, uh, a message for us to stand upon. My goal in today's talk was to work from that place without repeating too much of that content. We will address some of that same stuff and it will make sense as we work through it. But if you would like to continue to use those to build upon what we talk about today, it would be helpful. And I just want to say kind of in summary of all that, it's worth noting that as a whole, During this series of great questions, Scott has really done a phenomenal job of laying for us a foundation that we can stand upon God's word with confidence, that we can look in this and rely on it and that we can trust what scripture says to us. That's so important as we answer questions, even as Chris mentioned earlier uh, to us and reminded us in our worship time that we can stand and trust and be confident in God's word. And so as Scott has laid that foundation for us, uh, we know that God's word is reliable and truthful. And so that's really where I want to begin as we answer this question today is to look. At Scripture and to dive in. We're going to begin in the Old Testament, which might seem like a surprise if we're talking about Jesus. We're going to get to the New Testament, Uh, but I want to begin in the Old Testament in a place that I believe will prove its reliability and help us see a picture that emerges throughout all of Scripture about who Jesus is. And so I love that we're going to begin here. And uh, the reason I chose Isaiah really as this large text, we're going to read a big chunk of text Here, out of the whole chapter of 53. And the reason I chose this is because there's a really cool story that goes along with this book of Isaiah. Because when we think about, can I really trust the Bible? For so long, critics of Scripture have said, if you could just find a really old copy then you'd probably see that all these people who've been copying it over the years, they've manipulated what's in there. It's all changed a whole bunch, and they've changed the meaning, and they've manipulated the words. And so the interesting thing that happened about 70 years ago, that very thing took place. We can't overstate the importance of what went on 70 years ago with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You see, in 1947... There was a trio of young shepherds just in their teenage years were out tending to their flocks in the wilderness and they were doing what most teenage boys will do. If you've been a teenage boy, you know this. What do we do when we're bored and in the wilderness? We pick up rocks and we throw them. That's a boy thing to do. And if you're like me and you've done that, maybe you've thrown a rock and you realized you missed what you meant to hit and something shatters. Well, that's what these guys did. I'm glad to know I'm not alone in having thrown a rock. And that's the story that we have in 1947. They're out. They're throwing rocks at a stray goat. And instead, one of the rocks goes into a cave and they hear a shattering noise. Upon inspection, they find clay pottery that was in there. And that pottery contains scrolls. And then over the next decade... Archaeologists began to discover uh, all, uh, many hundreds of fragments and manuscripts and old documents. Many of them were copies of biblical text. And one of the things that they discovered was an entire scroll of the book of Isaiah. This is a big deal. It's known as the Great Isaiah Scroll. It is dated from 100 B.C. conservatively. And this 24-foot scroll is the complete book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, and is the oldest biblical scroll in existence. It's 1,000 years older than the oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible that had been known before its discovery. With a gap that large, 1,000-year gap, We might think this is the chance the critics are finally going to have their moment where they're going to see that the text would be very different. But when compared with the next oldest manuscript of Isaiah, the text is 95% identical. And that 5% variation consists mostly of a slip of the pen where a letter or a spelling error took place. None of those differences have any effect whatsoever on any matter of doctrine. This is evidence of the care that the scribes used as they copied these documents over the years. They copied it all by hand for over a thousand years. And the text is nearly identical. That's just hard to fathom. It's hard for me to fathom that. I think it's hard for us to, in an age where we can hit Command C on our MacBook. And we have got an identical copy and then command V to paste that same text. For us to imagine what it was like to copy this by hand is mind-blowing to see just how incredible of a feat this was. The importance of that discovery was to demonstrate the reliability of Scripture. This solidified any doubt that may have existed and ended the debate. The scroll that was found Gave us confidence of the uh, that the scriptures that we have written in our Bibles, that uh, that we have these that they are reliable for us. And this scroll of Isaiah, it's interesting to re- realize this predates Jesus. This is before Jesus, and it is one of the places in the Old Testament, and perhaps the best of a clear and a a, a description of what we would call a messianic prophecy pointing towards the Messiah. The Messiah just means anointed one. There's a Hebrew word that we would translate that just means anointed one. If you're used to reading the New Testament, which was written in Greek, the same way of saying anointed one is Christ. And so Messiah or Christ is a way to describe the person, the ruler that God would send that would deliver his people and reign forever and this Messiah was prophesied long before Jesus ever was born. And so when we read of this one chapter in the book of Isaiah, this scripture contains such a, cool, such a cool description of the Messiah. Let's read this all of chapter 53. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When you read this passage and hear this passage aloud, to whom do you think that it is referring? Just a casual reading of the Bible from our perspective should give little doubt for us that this suffering servant is in fact Jesus it doesn't require a whole bible degree for us to make at least a connection if we are familiar with the life of Jesus but if you're not even familiar with the life of Jesus it can be revealed to you we see that happen and take place even in acts chapter 8 there's a uh, a man who is studying this very passage of scripture and can't quite put it together you can read that whole section in Acts chapter 8. It's titled Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I just want to read the one verse in verse 35 that, that says, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Isaiah 53. If it were all, the only prophetic passage that we would have about the Messiah, it would be enough to make a connection to Jesus, but there are so many other Places in the Old Testament that predict the coming of the Messiah. Just a few would be Genesis 3, which talks about the offspring of Eve born to a woman. That talks about in Genesis 12, Abraham's offspring. In Jeremiah 23, that the son of David will be a righteous king who reigns. In Micah 5, chapter 2, that the Messiah will be an eternal ruler coming from Bethlehem. In Malachi 3, verse 1, Proceeded by a messenger, the Messiah will come to the temple. It goes on and on throughout our Old Testament. And when we reflect upon all of these things, we would ask who could be of the seed of a woman and of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David, both a God and man born in Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger and visited the temple before its destruction in A.D. 70, died in A.D. 33, rose from the dead. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the only possible candidate that we could find. I love the picture that emerges as we see the pieces of the Old Testament become, uh, become uncovered. As this copy of Isaiah was found in the great Isaiah scroll, it's so important for us to see this beautiful picture here this morning. And I think it's such evidence to God's intention and in His heart for us to have confidence in His Word. This is before fireproof safes. This is before dual, redundant, offsite backups. This is God's care for His Word for us that we can be confident and we can stand in it. And, and earlier in the book of Isaiah... It gives us a clear description that the Messiah is in fact divine. It says in chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Messiah would be born a man, but somehow be God as well. And long before the birth of Jesus... This scroll contained these predictions about a prophecy of a coming Messiah. And when we see these pieces coming together, we discover something from our vantage point that is like a picture of the whole or a box top of the puzzle. You see it's appropriate to say that the Old Testament has puzzle pieces. That doesn't mean that there is any any reason for us to to say that's not appropriate. In fact, what I'll share again is something Scott has shared with us, this quote that we can say this about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Christ is concealed, and in the New Testament, he is revealed. God's design was that this puzzle would be concealed. We would see pieces of it. But then in the life of Christ, it would be revealed. So Jesus, as we see and know His life, is the only known person that meets the, pre- the predicted qualifications of the Messiah. So the question is, did Jesus Himself claim to be God? We've established already in week two of our series that the New Testament is a reliable source of truth for us. And so we can look into the New Testament and we can know and we can understand uh, what is written there and trust uh, what is there. We can see that in the New Testament that um, the authors and the writers are clearly establishing Jesus as the Son of God. But did Jesus say that about Himself? Did Jesus say that about Himself? The New Testament writers certainly say this. Uh, In the very beginning of the book of John, it opens up and says the Word was God and the Word became flesh. Paul then says that 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 Christ is God over all in Romans chapter 9. And in Colossians chapter 2, he says in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Even in our Gospels, we see and read that the demons... We're willing to acknowledge and say that Jesus was God in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, Luke 4, 34 and 41. So many others in our New Testament say Jesus is God, but did he say that himself? There's perhaps no better place for us to look to the answer than when Jesus was on trial and stood before the high priest and being questioned before His crucifixion. It says this in Mark 14, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. Most certainly, Jesus claimed to be God. This was obvious to the first century people because they tried to actually pick up stones to kill Jesus for blasphemy for claiming to be God. Jesus made many statements where He implied that He was God. He made indirect references to the Old Testament Scriptures that were about God and applied them to Himself. He taught through parables that that implied His deity. And even more than making these statements, even more than performing miracles, which we'll hear more about next week, Jesus acted as if He was God. He said to a paralytic, Your sons are forgiven. And the scribes responded appropriately, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he immediately gave a new commandment. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In John chapter 14 and 15, he requests prayer in his name. And then despite the fact that the Old Testament clearly prohibits worshiping anyone other than God, and that's repeated again in the New Testament, Jesus accepts worship On at least nine occasions, Jesus claimed to be God, but he also proved it by fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, by performing miracles, living a sinless life and predicting and then accomplishing his own resurrection from the dead. If Jesus is God, what does that mean for me? If Jesus is God, what does that mean for us? It certainly means this, we should listen to what he says about himself. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To be honest, as I prepared this message, the the first part of our question was the easier section. I even told you already that the demons were willing to acknowledge that Jesus was God. The hard part, friends, is this next part. The hard part and the part that I've been praying for, for you to hear and for you to know, is this next part. And I want you to hear this clearly. There is no other way to salvation but through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to salvation but through Jesus Christ. Jesus said that He is the way. He did not say that He knows the way. He did not say that He represents the way. He is the way. There is no other. Did Jesus simply point towards that? By no means. It seems easier to say that and perhaps is one of the most popular ways to kind of back out of exclusivity of Christ is to say that Jesus just modeled the way to salvation. May, that loving others is the way to be saved. And Jesus modeled that. You could even say he modeled that perfectly. And that's easier than what we are saying today. We are not saying that that is what Scripture says. It is not consistent with Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and through 22, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The presence of God is no longer marked by a curtain that only a high priest after a series of cleansing rituals could enter. When Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom to indicate that because of the life of Jesus, namely because of His flesh, His righteous blood that covers and purifies us, we can enter into the presence of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, this is not hidden. God has made this clear. There is no doubt in sharing the way to salvation. This is spoken clearly by Jesus Christ. It is supported in the New Testament Scriptures. It is pointed in the Old Testament Scriptures and predicted. There is one way to salvation. That way is by placing our faith in Jesus as Christ the Son of God, and trusting Him as our Lord and Savior. But that doesn't sound very fair. There are many objections that we might have to such a statement. Fairness is one of those. It's not fair if people haven't heard about Jesus. How is this fair? It's not their fault. In response to that, we might ask, according to whose standard of justice? From our limited perspective, it may appear unfair, but when you consider the issue from God's perspective, it appears differently. No human being other than Jesus Christ has ever lived a sinless life. The unfairness is really that salvation is for all, yet none of us deserve it at all. Another objection might be that All religions essentially say the same thing that we should be good people, treat others well, seek after God, do good. All roads eventually lead to the same top of the mountain, so does it matter which road we take? This would be called a universalism objection. And a survey of world religions might at first appear as if there are uh, genuine agreements and fundamental uh, similarities between all religions. But Christian apologist Rabbi Zacharias does a great job of explaining why that is not true. He says it this way. He says, while it may appear that they are fundamentally the, the same and superficially different, the reality is the exact opposite. The reality is that religions are super, superficially similar, but fundamentally different there are contradictory claims about jesus for example in the teaching of the bible and christianity about what it says about jesus compared to what islam says in the quran about the divinity of jesus christ cannot fulfill the second person of the trinity as fully divine as our scripture teaches us and also merely be a human prophet as the quran teaches ultimately Jesus alone is sovereign over all false gods. And our scripture says in Philippians chapter two, every knee will bow to him alone. If salvation, though, is made possible by Jesus and he's provided avenues for that to be obtained, perhaps someone who would seek an avenue yet not through Jesus could obtain salvation. This is called uh, the inclusive, inclusive objection. It is how much could we want this to be true. In other words, if someone is genuinely seeking after God, maybe they will eventually come to salvation. And I get why this is attractive. We want people to be saved. We want people with a good motive to be saved. We want that for them, but the Bible does not, Teach that good motives are what saves. It does not teach that our effort, no matter how great our effort is, that is not what saves. The gospel message is fully inclusive, but salvation is exclusive. The truth is that the gospel is exclusively through Jesus Christ. And then, if we hold to this, we will be called judgmental. Christians think they have the only answer. How arrogant and judgmental that is. And closed-minded, do you not know how big the world is? And our response will be that we don't intend to be judgmental. In fact, We recognize that it is not us who judges, but God who judges. And we can stand firmly, not on ourselves or our own judgment, but we can stand firmly on the understanding that God is fully just. That it is God who is just and right. And that no one will go to hell who should go to heaven and vice versa. But you might say that we just don't know enough. No one has experienced, we can't really know and if we can't really know, then you can't have that level of confidence. And I would respond in that. We might respond to say, we have looked at Scriptures today that give us no doubt of the clarity of God's plan for us. And while we may have not personally experienced that, we certainly can know according to Scriptures. The Scripture is very clear that anyone apart from Christ is dead and that only life is found through Jesus. Our spiritual condition apart from Christ. Is death. And this is a summary of objections. You may find that there's an objection that falls somewhere in one of those categories or just in between, but this is a good summary of the objections to the exclusivity of Christ. And the pull of culture, the pull of culture and popular opinion is so forceful against this belief. Culture basically says... If you hold to an exclusivity viewpoint, you're hypocritical. You're unloving. You're bigoted. And this is a strong tug against this message that we have found that is true. Something that illustrates this well is a survey that was conducted last year, and it was asked of over 3,000 people, and of those who responded, and they identified themselves as a Christian they responded to the truth or not truth of this statement. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Of those who claimed and identified as a Christian, 28% said that they do not agree with that statement. I think this demonstrates the powerful pull of our culture that is in opposition to, to the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. And I was reflecting on this, and I was thinking, why is this the case? I had a realization, at least it is for me, that when this is on paper and I write this down, it, it seems to make sense. It, it, it's pretty clear and simple. But then when I speak face-to-face with a person, it changes for me. Because I've, if you've ever been in a place where you've had a conversation like that with someone, you see their face and you experience the disappointment, the rejection that they see as you explain this, even horror or shock. And in that response of their face, you feel like you're the coach telling them, you've not made the team. Or that you're saying, sorry, good effort, but you didn't get the part. And we don't want to be that person. We don't want that for people to reject us. We don't want them to be upset. And so what do we do? We inch away from the truth. We water down the message because we are so disturbed by that interaction. And so I was reflecting on this feeling for me, and just to be honest with you, I'm saying that for me, one of the things I forget about in these conversations is that it's not really about me. I forget that. That it's not really about me. That God is sovereign, not me. And that Jesus said people would reject Him. But, But sometimes I feel like they're rejecting me. And when I feel personally rejected, I'm tempted to compromise the truth because I want people to like me. I want people to think I'm great. I want people to think that I'm an alright guy. And when I experience rejection, I feel inside of myself a temptation to compromise what I know to be true. When we experience the sting of rejection, we might be tempted to walk away from truth. And we're more likely to compromise biblical truth and inch away from salvation through Christ alone. We will bail fast in the midst of that tension when we present someone with the choice of Jesus Christ or nothing. And in a society that says it's more palatable to allow anyone to believe what they want and where we are labeled bigots for anything other than that, it is good for us to remember where we might stand in this. Here's how I want to say this today. This reminder for ourselves that defending the faith, apologetics, defending our position is not about winning an argument. It's about winning hearts. I feel so compelled to tell this to you before we end because your defense might begin with knowledge or intellect, but it should always end at the heart. And if we're not careful... We're going to get pulled into an arrogant attitude that says, I have all the answers. And we're going to be focused on winning an argument so much so that we stop listening. that We start to prep our next response before the person's even done speaking. We need to listen carefully. Why does someone not feel like they can accept Jesus? Listen to what they say and only then will we be able to respond with the grace that is necessary to communicate the gospel effectively. If you know this is a struggle for you, then it is helpful to remember where we all stand according to Scripture. Not one of us is worthy of salvation. We all stand in a place where we are condemned by our sin. And let's get real. Sometimes it's harder for us to admit our need for salvation than it is to believe that Jesus is the only way. We like to think that we're pretty good. And that we've achieved or earned something. And we don't want to feel like a charity case. The gospel truth, as it is God's kindness and grace that leads us to repentance. We do not deserve the salvation that we have in Christ. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Every one of us is is condemned. And when we remember our standing, it helps posture our hearts and our speech in a way that allows us to present what the Bible does, which is that salvation is actually a radically inclusive message to give. God, would You shape our hearts today and refine us and eliminate those moments of pride or arrogance or know-it-all feelings that we might have? Would You help us to position ourselves ready to answer with truth to friends and neighbors that so desperately need it. We cling to You and You alone, knowing that You are our hope. We fall at Your feet, Lord Jesus. We fall at Your feet, declaring You as Lord, our Savior. We love You, praise You for what You've done in Christ. Amen. Amen.